thank you for coming to this evening's talk, Why Should Attorneys Represent Unpopular Clients? My name is Nathaniel Peters, and I'm the director of the Morningside Institute, which brings scholars and students together to examine enduring ideas, create intellectual friendship, and to enrich these ideas and friendships with the vibrant life of New York City. Our work covers a broad array of disciplines and topics, but one of the themes that we try to return to again and again is examining the foundational principles that underlie contentious legal, political, and cultural disagreements. In reading groups with Columbia Law students, for instance, we look at the understanding of human nature present in the Federalist Papers that in turn shapes the structure of the Constitution, and at the Founders' understanding of the laws of nature with which our statutes and legal structures in their minds should accord. Much of our work has also tried to solve the problem of self-censorship so prevalent on campus through rigorous inquiry held in a spirit of intellectual friendship. And it's in the spirit of, of these themes that we wanted to host the panel discussion today. For just as the balanced, open, and fair study of ideas and texts is essential to the educational system and the core of our society, so one of the foundational principles and practices at the heart of our justice system is, or at least has been, the right of all citizens to equal representation before the bar. Such representation requires representatives, of course, and in recent years, some attorneys, law students, professors have begun to question whether they should represent unpopular clients who might reflect badly on them or whose causes, in the eyes of many, might in some way harm society. The topic that we'll be discussing tonight is therefore a timely one, and I expect that a number of you have wrestled with it, uh, or your firms have wrestled with it personally. I'm delighted to have with us this evening a distinguished panel to help us think through this question. Um, first, the Honorable Richard J. Sullivan serves as a US uh, Circuit Court Judge for the Second Circuit. Before that, Judge Sullivan served for 11 years as a U.S. District Court Judge for the Southern District of New York. Prior to becoming a judge, he served as the General Counsel and Managing Director of Marsh Incorporated, the world's leading risk management and insurance brokerage firm, as well as an Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York, where he was Chief of the International Narcotics Trafficking Unit and Director of the New York, New Jersey Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. Judge Sullivan is on the executive board of the New York, in of the New York American Inn of Court and the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's University School of Law. He also serves as an adjunct, uh, adjunct professor at Columbia Law School, where he teaches courses on sentencing and jurisprudence. One of the next, one of the preeminent scholars writing today on constitutional law and its history. Philip Hamburger teaches and writes on wide-ranging topics, including, including religious liberty, freedom of speech and the press, academic censorship, the regulation of science, judicial duty, administrative power, and the development of liberal thought. In his latest book, Liberal Suppression, Section 501c3 and the Taxation of Speech, he shows that the revenue codes restrictions on the political speech of churches were initially proposed by the Imperial Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan and shows that these speech limitations are unconstitutional. You can ask him more about that over wine afterwards. In 2014, Hamburger established the law school's Center for Law and Liberty, which studies threats to and legal protections for freedom, and which is a co-sponsor of tonight's event. He's the founder and CEO as well of the new Civil Liberties Alliance, an independent nonprofit legal uh, civil rights organization based in DC that uses litigation and other pro bono advocacy to defend constitutional freedoms from the administrative state. Our third speaker, Aaron Murphy, is widely recognized as one of the nation's leading Supreme Court and appellate advocates. She's argued dozens of cases in appellate and trial courts throughout the country, including the Supreme Court and nearly all the federal courts of appeals. Erin is one of only seven women in the top two bands of Chambers and Partners rankings for appellate law nationwide, and the National Law Journal has named her one of the nation's outstanding women lawyers. The National Law Journal also named her a litigation trailblazer 
for her work representing institutional clients, which includes successfully arguing before the Supreme Court on behalf of the U.S. House of Representatives and the Wisconsin State Legislature. Erin is an adjunct professor at her alma mater, the Georgetown University Law Center, a member and former officer of the Edward Koch Appellate Inn of Court, and a frequent speaker on topics relating to the Supreme Court and appellate advocacy. Our moderator for the evening is Brian Mock, who is an a litigation partner in the New York office of Walden Mock to Perrin. He holds a JD from Columbia Law School and a PhD in philosophy from Emory University. Before helping to launch Walden Mock and Heron in 2015, he was a litigation associate in the New York office of Gibson and Dunn and clerk for the Honorable Edward Corman in the Eastern District of New York. He's also the author of a book of, for philosophy students and instructors, Writing to Reason, as well as articles published in the University of Chicago Law Review Online, the New York Law Journal, and Public Discourse. Let me end finally with a word of thanks to Daryl Capasso and his staff here at Oric for hosting all of us tonight, to our panelists for agreeing to be here, and to all of you for joining us. Welcome. Good evening. One of our aims tonight is to put this question why should lawyers represent unpopular clients? In a broader context of moral considerations than we might consider in a typical CLE. For that reason, I'm especially grateful to the Morningside Institute and the Columbia Law School Center for Law and Liberty for bringing together this panel to address some of the institutional, historical, political, and professional considerations, in addition to the legal considerations, that inform and answer to this timely question. Uh, just to deal with the CLE housekeeping, please remember to sign in. Please remember to sign out. Uh, an evaluation form will be made available to you. Please feel free to, uh, to fill that out and return it to Nathaniel and his staff. Uh, as far as the format for this evening, I will make some introductory uh, remarks, pose some uh, obligatory hypotheticals. Um, I will actually mention some of the ethics rules uh, so, that, so that we can all have CLE credit. Uh, and, um, and then I will, I will put a number of questions uh, to the panelists and give them an opportunity to respond and interact with each other. Uh, there, I would ask you to hold questions until the end. Uh, I think we should have ample time for, for Q&A uh, when, when the panelists uh, have completed their remarks. Uh, so again, before I turn to uh, our first panelist, Aaron Murphy, with some questions, let me propose a few hypotheticals to get the issues on the table. So, by the way, with respect to this noise, uh, I had an argument uh, before uh, Justice Sherwood in the commercial division about, well, maybe three years ago. And the fire alarm for the courtroom is located in a conference room uh, in his chambers. And it is the loudest fire alarm I have ever encountered. And it went off in the middle of some argument on discovery issues. And one of my partners was, was arguing. And he didn't miss a beat. He didn't stop or slow down. He just continued with the argument. And the opposing counsel said, you know, Your Honor, would you, like, would you like us to wait? And Justice Sherwood said, no, I'm good, keep arguing. And it just went on. So I think um, I will try to equip myself uh, just as well. Uh, and, and persist uh, regardless of the noise. So, suppose one of my partners calls me and asks whether I would help on a complex civil matter that he's been handling for a few years. Suppose the nature of the harm that was caused or the nature of the client's business is deeply repugnant to me. Maybe not so much so that I would be mentally incapable of doing my job, but so much that I'd rather resign than be associated with this case. So I politely declined to be involved in the representation. Have I failed to fulfill one of my professional duties? Um, if we look to the rules, uh, you might think, uh, to the contrary, I may have a duty not to uh, help my partner with this particular case because I may have a personal conflict. So we find in, um, in uh, 
RPC 1.7A2, the, uh, uh, the direction that an attorney shall not um, work on a case except the client representation if there's a significant risk that the lawyer's professional judgment would be adversely affected by personal interests. Arguable that that may be present here. But coupled with that, um, the, the, the main concern here being that I don't want to be associated with this matter. Well, we, we find in RPC 1.2b the idea that a lawyer's representation of a client, including representation by appointment, does not constitute an endorsement of the client's political, economic, social, or moral views or activities. And I think if a lawyer had just fallen off the turnip truck, you might think that there's a chance that by participating in the matter, you would not be associated uh, with a controversial case or client. Um, this, this does stand out as, as one of the stranger uh, uh, rules in the, um, in the, the rules of professional conduct. Nonetheless, comment five for the same rule, 1.2b, says legal representation should not be denied to any person who is unable to afford legal services or whose cause is controversial or the subject of popular disapproval. Isn't that exactly what I would be doing if I declined to participate in this representation? Even if I haven't run afoul of any of the rules of professional conduct, have I nonetheless, in declining this representation, failed to uphold an important professional norm? Is my decision blameworthy in some sense? There's a variation on the hypothetical. Suppose my partner and I talk about the client's business. And suppose I'm having a good day and I'm very persuasive. The resulting uh, conversation causes my partner to realize that he feels the same way about the harm and about the client's business. And he decides to withdraw from the representation. Same set of questions presents itself. Here we would look to rule 1.16C, which states that a lawyer may withdraw from representing a client when one withdrawal can be accomplished without material adverse effect on the interests of the client. Something I think uh, uh, Ms. Murphy will, will address um, in her remarks. That's, that's one, um, one scenario in which withdrawal is permissible. But there are a number of other circumstances where withdrawal is per permissible, including with client consent, uh, or if a court finds good cause. Here's another scenario. Suppose the client had engaged a different firm at the outset, but I still find the client's business repugnant. So I launch a name and shame campaign on social media. Knowing this will put pressure on the other firm to drop the repugnant client. And let's assume, just to make things easy, that I'm correct in thinking that the world will be a better place if this corporation disappears from the face of the earth. Same set of questions here about professional duty. Do I have a duty not to engage in or condone lawyer shaming? Um, I believe that to look to the rules here, I'm forced to look to the preamble. And I think whenever a lawyer is forced uh, to, to rely on a preamble, you don't feel on, on sure footing. Uh, the preamble entitled The Lawyer's Responsibilities says in part, as an officer of the legal system, each lawyer has a duty to uphold the legal process to demonstrate respect for the legal system, to seek improvement of the law, and to promote access to the legal system and the administration of justice. In addition, a lawyer should further the public's understanding of and confidence in the rule of law and the justice system because in a constitutional democracy, legal institutions depend on popular participation and support to maintain their authority. Is lawyer shaming consistent with this obligation? And finally, more practically to, to um, people in the room perhaps, suppose I serve on the intake committee of my firm and the client wants to hire us for a separate but related controversial matter. To avoid the risk of lawyer shaming and assume this is the only reason to avoid this risk, I vote to turn it down. Same set of uh, questions about professional obligations and professional duties presents itself. I am not sure that the ethics rules give any of us much helpful guidance here. Uh, but the rules of professional conduct also say in the preamble, the rules provide a framework for the ethical practice of law 
The rules do not, however, exhaust the moral and ethical considerations that should inform a lawyer, for no worthwhile human activity can be completely defined by legal rules. So to explore these other moral and ethical considerations, I'm very grateful that we have this panel with us tonight. And with that, I'll turn to our first panelist, Aaron Murphy. As some of you may know, on June 23rd of this year, the Supreme Court delivered an opinion in the matter of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, holding for the petitioners represented by Ms. Murphy and her partner, Paul Clement, in the first gun rights case decided by the Supreme Court since Heller in 2008 and McDonald in 2010. As you might also know, the court held that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect an individual's right to carry a handgun for self-defense outside the home, and that because the state of New York issues public carry licenses only when an applicant demonstrates a special need for self-defense, the state's licensing regime violates the Constitution. It was reported that after this victory, Ms. Murphy and Mr. Clement's law firm, Kirkland and Ellis, asked them to terminate their representation of the petitioners. On June 24th, Ms. Murphy and Mr. Clement published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, explaining why they would be leaving the firm and continuing to represent their clients. There is a link to the op-ed in the written materials. Please read it. It presents a clear and compelling answer to the question, why should lawyers represent unpopular clients? So perhaps the best place to begin this discussion is to ask Ms. Murphy if she would please elaborate on the argument presented in the op-ed and, and present here her views on a lawyer's duty to represent unpopular clients. And, and when she finishes her remarks, I'll ask Professor Hammaker and Judge Sullivan to share their thoughts on the same question. Sure, thank you. And, and I should say that's a thank you all for having me up here and for being here for this conversation, which of course I, I think is extraordinarily important um, and has been a, a defining one of the past few months of, of my career, but also a defining one for, for most of my career because this this isn't actually the first time that um, that Paul and I left a law firm over a law firm telling us to fire an unpopular client. Uh, so you know this this is this is this is a topic that couldn't be more near and dear to, to my heart uh, in what it means to, to be a lawyer. I think at the outset, you know, to, to talk about the particular situation we faced, I, I do think it's important to there's two things, you know, that were nicely introduced in in the opening remarks here. There's a question of whether to take on a client, um, and there's a lot to to talk about in that, and and there's a reality you have to talk about that also law is a business, and like yeah, you can't if you're going to take on one client, that's going to destroy your ability to do any other work. I mean, there's considerations, there's difficult considerations about what clients to take on, and. I, Important conversations for us to have tonight about that, but but I think that like it, it shouldn't be a hard question that you shouldn't fire a client because they become unpopular, uh, or your other clients don't like them, or some of the other lawyers in your firm don't like them. You know, once you've taken on a client, you have an ethical obligation, you have a legal obligation. I mean, we we are. Yes, law is a business, but but ultimately it's a profession that's found, that's guided by and bound by all of the rules of ethical representation. And firing your clients just because like you kind of don't like them anymore um, is is really antithetical to the relationship, the kind of professional relationship or relationship of kind of trust and sort of a fiduciary type relationship that lawyers have with their clients. Um, it's extremely damaging. damaging to the client, obviously, to lose their representation. It's damaging to a client to have the universe told this client is so unpopular that they're unworthy of representation. I mean, it, it's detrimental to the actual interests of a client. And you know, what, what we are all supposed to know, first and foremost, is we're, we're not supposed to take actions that are affirmatively detrimental to our clients. And that, for us, with this experience, was was really, you know, the the the, the line that we were just not ever going to cross. Um, you know, we we had conversations, we tried. You know, tried to work things through, 
things through with the firm to maybe if you you know we're going to kind of figure things out about what we're, we'll do in the future. But we have existing clients, and we had clients not only in the Bruin case that was up at the Supreme Court. We had three other petitions for certiorari that were being held for that case that still had to be resolved by the court um, in in the immediate wake of Bruin coming down. And and nonetheless, in those kind of critical days when the court is acting on the petitions of our clients is when our firm announced that uh, that they were, you know, that our, our clients were, were so distasteful that they would no longer represent them. Uh, I, I find that, you know, quite extraordinary and I had a lot of conversations with a lot of partners at Kirkland. I mean, if this was not like something that, you know, was put up for a vote by lots of people at the firm, so there were lots of people at the firm that were not involved in this decision and, and lots of people at the firm that were really troubled by this decision and probably the most common question I got from people and they were obviously not expecting me to answer it but posing it as, as sort of their own rhetorical question out of their own frustration is what am I supposed to say when my other clients ask me you know what happens if I become <coughs> popular uh, you know what am, am I next what is your criteria for deciding which clients you can fire because because of these types of concerns, and and I think I, I mean I'm at a loss to figure out what they are, I, I, and I think that's precisely why it's really not a line you can cross because once you cross it, what you're saying is contrary to what the, the ethics code says. I am sort of my clients. I am associated with them, and once you start kind of embracing that, then you have to kind of examine every attorney-client relationship you have and think about what it says about you and think about all of that through that lens. Or conversely, if you're thinking about it through a completely transactional business lens, I mean, you've just, then, then you have no loyalty of any kind to your clients uh, and, and whatever may befall them tomorrow. And as, as we said in the piece we did in the journal, I mean, boy, it's, it's, it's the unpopular clients who are often the most in need of the representation. And many times, you know, there are, there are great examples throughout history of unpopular clients being the ones who made good, important law, legal developments that are critical and that, you know, we, we, we should want to see these advancements in the law and we shouldn't want to see them less just because we're uncomfortable with who the client who the party is that's advancing the arguments. So, uh, you know, I think there's 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 a lot to talk about in terms of should you represent unpopular clients in the first place? And obviously, you know, we think yes because we represent unpopular clients or at least clients that are unpopular in some circles. But I, I wish it wasn't a hard question that you shouldn't drop your unpopular clients just because people put pressure on you about it. But unfortunately. You know, it, it seems that it for many a firm it still is. Professor Hamburger, could I invite you to uh, respond to the same set of issues, please? Sure. Thank you so much. Um, I want to begin just by saying what a pleasure and honor it is to be with, here with Michael Penrose. Um and I particularly want to say what a pleasure it is to be here with Aaron. We rode up in the same elevator. We had a nice conversation. Um, but I didn't realize who I was traveling with. And I think it's very important to honor people who do great things. I know it wasn't something you chose, but many people would have gone along with it, not because it's necessarily, you know, they don't think about this ahead of time, they're unaccustomed to standing out to being unpopular in your firm. That takes some toughness, so congratulations. Great pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Um, now, uh, just to reinforce that in other ways, uh, I sometimes tell my students, and they don't look very happy when I tell them this, I say, you haven't lived until someone has spat in your face your legal argument. I've only experienced that once. I can't say I thought it was a great experience at the time. <laughs> a good dinner table conversation afterwards. But it, it, it's important. Uh, it actually is good for the soul to be unpopular. Not because you're a jerk, not because you do things that are reprehensible, but for standing up for people who need it, and they're not always good. At New Civil Liberties Alliance, my little litigation firm, we, we do only pro bono work, but our, our, the first person we stood up for in the Supreme Court was an amicus brief that turned out to be very important uh, uh, for a sex offender, Mr. Gundy. Um, we paused, 
And then we've realized, no, no, we can't boss. This is, that's what this is all about, because his rights establish other people's rights. It's not about him. Uh, now, let me just say a few bit about the options here. Uh, there are very limited options, actually, for the ethics rules. Uh, in India, there's a duty to represent. If someone comes to you, allegedly, you're, you're meant to say, sure. If they can pay, that's it. Um, we in America generally have a freedom to choose. I know the ethics rules seem very complicated and Byzantine. They are, uh, but generally, we choose. It's a chaotic country, and we get to choose not only what we drink, but also what our clients are. Uh, and this is tempered by the duty not to criticize, but non-accountability. I hate the names of different things. But in any case, it's basically you not to criticize. You can criticize lawyers as a whole. You can criticize individual lawyers for all sorts of misbehavior, but not for taking an unpopular client, actually. And this once worked, not because that rule, because we just don't society anymore. We're not that sort of society anymore. Times are changing. Um, there's now, I think, a tendency to have both a freedom to choose your client and a duty to criticize other lawyers and their choices of client. Uh, right, because it's immoral, you know, join the crowd, right? Now, why is this? I think external stresses are breaking down this norm as well as a thousand others, right? Um, I don't think it's really a problem at the individual level. You know, if someone doesn't want me as a client, it's a big deal. It is a problem at an institutional or structural level, and that's precisely what the ethics rules don't address. They're addressed towards individuals and their duties. But what are the duties of a law firm? are generally as well, even more unenforceable. And so as I see it, the problems are, among other things, a political capture of institutions, right? Uh, the march of the institutions certainly is familiar in academia, but it also reaches regulatory agencies, professional organizations, like bar associations, private firms, many clients, churches, and so forth. It covers the entire gamut of institutions in our society. And what this means is, I think, uh, there's often now an alignment of opinion penalties for dissent. It's what John Stuart Mill complained about in On Liberty, although he hadn't really experienced it the same degree that I think we are about to. Um, but what does that mean? That means there's a fear of repercussions. So Erin is not only courageous, she's also a remarkably good lawyer, I gather, right? And what that means is she can walk away from her firm and not really sweat it that much. She's going to have a lot of people walking her to work for them. Um, but most lawyers, most lawyers, you know, when I, when I was young, you worry, you know, what's my employment? What am I going to be doing? And uh, the problem is not only do you have to worry, will another law firm hire you, but will you in-house? Will they hire you? Will you get an academic, you know, can you work as an adjunct at Georgetown? <laughs> Probably not, um, with your exceptions, uh, and so forth. Uh, and so there's a real problem when there's an alignment of opinion across institutions. Um, and I'll just add that I think this is exacerbated by the consolidation of professional large firms. Um, firms, I don't want to say they don't have any soul. Some institutions, I've been in law firms which have a bit of a soul, but I wouldn't count on it, right? Um, and so what's to be done? I mean, I can go on and on about the collapse of, uh, we used to have a process-oriented morality, the process speech, presentational matters, we now have substantive results-oriented morality process of damn. Um, I don't know what the solution will be. I hope you two have solutions. Um, but I do have one little thing to throw out, is that there will come a time when this will circle around to law firms. Just as some universities are discovering that they will be the one plucked out for Linsky-like loving treatment as untouchable, that will happen to a law firm sometime in our future. And then there'll be a learning experience. What did uh, Mark Twain say? Um, that uh, there's something, uh, if, you, if you catch a cat by the tail, there's some things you can learn in no other way. I think that's going to happen to a law firm or two. But we'll see. Thanks. Well, I will say that I have never envisioned law firms or lawyers having an obligation to take any client that walks in the door. I would stand in the quote from a comment in the rules that you just read. Um, I, I don't think that is an obligation of lawyers. I don't think anybody seriously thinks that. Um, and I don't think that there's a, uh, that there's sort of a sliding scale that sort of means extra consideration goes to unpopular clients where the conversation between lawyer and potential client is how unpopular are you? Um, and if you can demonstrate you're really unpopular, then you've got me under, you've got me over a barrel. 
Um, I, I don't think that's generally how it works. But I do think that lawyers do have an obligation to process and an obligation to courts. And so in the criminal context, when we have a long history of lawyers being basically conscripted to represent clients who are wildly unpopular. And I'll give you a couple examples from fiction and life. Fiction is to kill a mockingbird. I mean, Atticus Finch is appointed to represent Tom Robinson. He does not want this case. And I hazard a guess that if Tom Robinson's family walked in and said, we need you to take this case, we've cobbled together some money for you to do it, he probably would have said no. It's Judge Taylor who picks it. And he knows it's coming because he knows that Judge Taylor knows that he's going to give a good representation to Tom Robbins, whether he's guilty or not. He's going to have respect for the process and the institution of the court, and he's going to live up to that obligation, even if it means that he literally has somebody spit in his face, and even if it means he's going to lose a lot of business. Uh, you know, the, the historical example of that is John Adams, who wasn't appointed to represent uh, Captain Preston and others in the Boston Massacre, but he was prevailed upon by their representatives and family members to say, you, you got to do this, because if you don't, nobody else will do it. And he felt an obligation to the process. Uh, I mean, this is a colonial court, but he feels an obligation to it, because otherwise, this entire system will be called into question, and the world is watching. And so he feels that responsibility, and he litigates the thing hard, even though it might really undermine his reputation as a leading uh, patriotic uh, colonialist uh, you know, on the eve of what becomes the revolution. Um, you know, another example, it's sort of fiction and real, is if you saw the movie Marshall, you see that movie? Chadwick Boseman plays Thurgood Marshall, and it's about a real trial in Connecticut, and Josh Gad plays uh, a lawyer, Sam Friedman, who basically gets conscripted to represent a man accused of a rape, a black man accused of a rape in Connecticut, uh, when Marshall is told he can only second chair. He's not allowed to, to do the representation. And this is something Friedman does not want to do. He's not even a litigator. Um, but he recognized that he has no choice but to say, yes, I'm going to do this, because that's his obligation to the court. On the criminal side, we have a long history of that. And I don't think that that's seriously under, uh, in, in any doubt now. I, I think lawyers and law firms routinely represent people on the CJA panel. They're doing a lot of pro bono work, uh, probably even more more now than they did 20 or 30 years ago. I think that white, white collar practice has led to a lot of law firms having former prosecutors who are willing to take these cases on the defense side, and they're providing really valuable pro bono uh, service to clients who are charged with incredibly serious crimes, uh, including terrorism, or murder, or Hobbs Act robbery, or drug trafficking. So I, I don't think we have too much to worry on that side. Um, I think it's on the civil side where it's becoming more and I think part of it is because pro bono has become something almost unrecognizable from what it would have been 50 years ago. I think pro bono is now a marketing tool of firms, and it's used, it's designed, I think, to attract lawyers from law schools and, in some ways, to placate clients, many of whom have their own pressures from shareholders and others, to uh, adopt a certain agenda. And I think it's an agenda that pretty closely often tracks with sort of the Democratic Party. It's not a judgment call, but it's just, you know, 80, in 2020, 310 or $20 million was spent by lawyers in political campaigns, and 80 plus percent of it was in support of Democratic candidates. That's just a fact. Um, but it certainly affects, I think, the types of matters that are being taken on in pro bono. And it is also, I think, affecting the kinds of cases pro bono or paying that firms are willing to take and or keep. Uh, and so I think Aaron sort of has gotten the crosshairs of that, and I think that that's not uncommon. I have to, I mean, I think if you're at a big firm, a lot of firms now have pro bono partners, uh, and if a lawyer comes in and says, I'd like to represent a baker in Colorado who feels like he's got a pretty good First Amendment free exercise case, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure that many firms are going to take it, and I think they're not going to take that case because they recognize that they have a brand, and that brand, like a lot of companies, companies that used to avoid political positions of all kinds, they are now recognizing that uh, in this day and age, everything is political. You cannot buy a pizza and it not being a political act. Buying a pizza is a political act, then choosing a lawyer and choosing a pro bono matter is highly political. And I just think lawyers and law firms should 
recognize that that's what they're doing and that there are dangers in doing that. And unless they have real criteria for what they take and don't take, or if the only criteria is we basically espouse the platform of a particular political party, I think it diminishes the profession and I do think it, it, it's what exactly uh, Professor Hamburg was talking about in his sort of uh, capture of institutions that used to have norms and standards that uh, transcended pure politics. But I don't think this is completely new. I do have to say, I mean, I think the line between activism and advocacy has always existed. I think there have always been activist firms, there have always been activist causes. Um, I just think now it is blurred more than ever, and I think that there is a very unapologetic, growing minority, or maybe it's more than a minority, who would say that is the model. Uh, move towards an overtly political process of taking clients and making which also. So I, I have a few more questions, but um, would uh, Ms. Murphy and Professor Hamburg, would you like to respond at all to anything the other panelists said? I, I, I guess I would just echo. I mean, I think I think it's quite true what you say. Just the way um, that it, the the rise of and even just in the past few years, sort of the rise of the pro bono practices at firms, it's just had an extraordinary impact on the way that all of these issues are thought about. And it doesn't even matter, you know. I mean, we were Kirkland was one of the few firms that was ever doing any of this work in the first place. I mean, most firms would, would not, will not do Second Amendment work, would certainly not do um, kind of the conservative side of a lot of religious liberty work, certainly not if it's something that involves um, LGBTQ issues. You know, I mean, it's just been, uh, and, and a lot of groups who are out there doing that kind of work have pointed out that you, you could never get a big law firm to be on your side and do the weakest brief in any of these cases. And having been inside a big firm, and inside a big firm that, that many pointed to for years as being better about this than other firms, and I can tell you, it was still a struggle. It was like you know, every case we did get to do, for every case we got to do, there was probably five I fought to do and didn't get to do. Um, and and what's, you know, what, what's quite extraordinary to me, I, I do think some of this um, combines with the rise of, with the with the conglomeration of firms, when you get a lot more corporate and transactional work in a firm, and you have a little bit less of a litigation presence, I think it is. Uh, yeah, I think both litigation attorneys and litigation clients are a little more sensitive about all of this because even if you're a big company that feels a lot of pressure to be kind of on the right side of various legal, various social issues, you do have to worry about you know. I could become pretty unpopular pretty quickly, and so there's a little bit different self-interest. Uh, in my experience, nowadays, I think the pressure, a lot of the strongest pressure, comes not from the litigation clients, but from the more kind of corporate client base, private equity firms, some of these um, these other types of clients who are not, who don't have a litigation relationship with the firm, and instead have more of a transactional relationship with the firm. And I think that there's a and nature, there's there's an inevitable tendency then to think because if that's if you're you know if you don't kind of if you're using a lawyer in quite the same capacity that we think about in that litigation way, you lose you, you think about it all a little bit more like a business, um, and it is a different judgment if you're a business and if you're just a business thinking of who has whose main responsibility is to your shareholders to actually make profit. You know, of course, you think differently about which who you're going to work with and all of that, and you should. Um, but you know, I, I, when you bring that mentality into a law firm and let it start to crowd out that relation, that attorney-client relationship, that's where I think things get, get very dangerous. And I think there's just a lot more of that going on today. Aaron, can I ask you a question? You don't have to answer it if you're not comfortable. But did it occur to you that you could bring a disciplinary action against your firm for violating the provisions that uh, you heard read aloud? I would say it's not something, you know, I thought, thought, thought fully through. I, mean, I, I used to be on the Southern District's Disciplinary Committee, and uh, I've never heard of such a disciplinary action. Um, maybe there will be some, um, but, but I, I never heard of one like it. Um, on that very point, I was just happy to be reading Albert Hirschman's Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, and he discusses this. And he points that we have very different politics in some other countries because he points out 
the corporate class, and for his purposes, we're sociologically part of the corporate class. Um, in America, does not break with its institutions. You may leave, you may voice discontent, um, but you're not going to ratchet it up to an action that will make you unemployable in the future place. So, for example, with the university, I may get annoyed occasionally with an administrator. Um, now, I happen, I, I sometimes get energetic on this thing, but I don't like to gentle soul, I don't like fighting, but uh, really, but um, on the whole, never, never will do the sort of act of calling them out publicly, because then you're unemployable in another university. I'll call them out internally. So even I live by that corporate code within my institution. I, I just want to get back to the politics you mentioned. It's nice that you associated politics with pizza. It makes me think politics is more interesting. Um, but um, but it, I think it's a very special sort of politics. I don't think it's Republican, Democrat, although it sometimes aligns with that. I think it's class politics. You know, 100 years ago, firms were political, right? Um, there were Democratic firms, Republican firms. The politics has always been there. What's happened is that um, our politics has become class-oriented in almost a 19th century European way, such that the tastes of the educated class opposition to that of people who work with our hands. And of course, we work with our brains, not with our hands. And that that means a sort of consolidation of the politics in institutions in these And I think that's, that, that's what makes the politics so lethal these days, the way it never was before. I'd like to circle back to something that Professor Hammerger mentioned, which was uh, what's called the norm of non-accountability. Um, the moral rightness of a lawyer's client representations may be presumed, and a lawyer does not owe society any explanation or justification when he or she undertakes the representation of an unpopular client or cause. And I'd like to invite some further comment on that particular norm, and um, and ask you all to consider whether it may be appropriate and maybe even beneficial for lawyers to consider and at times be held to account for the broader impact of their representations and the precedents they help to create. So, uh, I hate the word norm, I hate the word accountability, but never mind that. Um, I, I want to get I want to think about the, uh, the defense of terrorists that was so fashionable about 20 years ago um, and the treatment of Trump lawyers today. Um, I had many friends who were defending terrorists. Some of them came from military families. It was point of pride for them. It, they suddenly became fashionable. Uh, to criticize them would have been almost unthinkable. I privately have my doubts. But I, not, and I, but I, wouldn't, and I wouldn't criticize them for any particular terrorist, but it did trouble me, and I did think we were free to talk about the fact that many firms were devoting resources systematically to the defense of terrorists in a way they would never do for, let's say, church. Um, and that just struck me as sort of interesting. And now, of course, it, you know, touch Trump and it's boom, turned to lead. And uh, that, it seems to me this is all aligned politically, right? This is a, there's a political alignment. These are not different situations, right? But um, so I, I think it's actually very important to be able to criticize institutions for uh, not for individual representation, but for the general tendency of the institution. I don't want to be hard in such criticisms, but there's a certain irony and perhaps hypocrisy. So, I mean, I, you know, I guess at some level you can't completely divorce what 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 you're doing and, and what you're accomplishing and thinking about it a little bit through that lens, but I, I guess my own instinct about it all, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's many, many people out there who are cause lawyers on a particular side and are wonderful, wonderful lawyers, but at least for the kind of law I do, I, I think it's just a disservice as a, to, to, to lawyers as lawyers, like, you're not... You, you become a better lawyer by actually forcing yourself to think about both sides. I mean, whether you're on the side you want or not, you're going to have to answer the questions from the judge who doesn't agree with you. You're going to have to litigate against good lawyers on the other side. And I, I've, you know, both, both Paul and I have often remarked that 
find it, like sometimes we think we are almost better lawyers in the cases that we don't naturally have the instinct that are like that we walk into thinking it seems like our client is right. And so I, I just I, I think it's a real disservice to kind of the profession and the professional growth and development of lawyers if you kind of if you start thinking of the lawyer as the client and as what they accomplish and divorce it from, you know what, like really at the end of the day we're all supposed to be kind of advocates for the law and there's different views about the law and you know sometimes you may in your heart of hearts think your client's legal position isn't exactly the right one but you're there to advocate for what the rule of law should be in a particular case not you know it's very rare at least in when you're dealing with kind of legal issue cases at the level I am that you're really advocating about whether your client's kind of right as a matter of policy and social justice and all that like that's that's actually not gonna kind of win the day once you're in the courts where you have to actually talk about law and so at least, you know, in, in, in a world where that's what you've got to focus on, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a disservice to, to all the clients out there to kind of get people to, for the world to think of it as, no, I'm really about, you know, what, what my reflection is not whether I'm good at the law, but, you know, the bottom line of what happens in a case and how you think about it in some like, utilitarian perspective of, like, what is, you know, what, what does or doesn't happen in the world by virtue of this person winning or losing or this company winning or losing. And once you start thinking about it that way, boy, you, you, you kind of all have to go be pause lawyers because how are you not going to keep looking at some things and being like, well, you know, I'm not sure that this is really for the best of the world if this client wins and how is it going to reflect on me and do my personal views align with this? Do I need to then make sure people don't think they align with this? So I need to go out there and tell everybody just to be clear, this is my lawyer, this is my client, I'm just their lawyer, don't assume that I actually think they're right. You know, I mean, we, we have to kind of have a construct of assuming you don't need to say that because you can't say that. It would be completely detrimental to your client's interest. So I, I, you know, I agree, I think there's conversations to be had about how resources are devoted, absolutely. Um, and you know, when you have firms kind of going out of their way, I mean, it's called, you know, firms will refer to it as impact litigation. That's what they want. They want their pro bono cases to be impact litigation that does take a lot of money and has a huge ultimate impact in the world. And uh, you know, it, it's a very different way of thinking about pro bono and what we're trying to kind of accomplish with that, which I think historically was a little more thought of as the point of pro bono is to help people who kind of can't get representation not, you know, it's how we're gonna use our resources to advance particular social causes. So I think there's a conversation, but to me, I'd rather have the conversation sort of about what's the right framework for thinking about how you should use your resources and less about, you know, the politics of it and calling people out for being a little bit one side or the other, unless you wanna do it in a critical way of saying, you know, you're claiming you don't wanna put resources. I mean, I, I particularly love to turn the tail end of Kirkland when this sort of idea of we're not going to do controversial cases and at the same time you know, they're ginning up impact litigation to go ensure the right to abortion would continue in the wake of Dobbs, which I guess doesn't qualify as controversial. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a discussion to have about hypocrisy, um, but I think it's better to have the conversation through the lens of what are what is the framework, what are the principles that should be guiding us when we think about what kind of work to do, what kind of clients to do, and less kind of taking on people for the particular causes and clients that they do or don't take on. I don't have too much to add. I mean, I guess I think the point, the most obvious point, is that the what makes something controversial from the perspective of a law firm or a practitioner is the relevant audiences. And that, you know, there are a lot of people who like the Second Amendment. There are a lot of people who are you know, pro-life, uh, I suppose. But that's not the relevant audience for most uh, you know, summer associate classes or for, um, for, for most Fortune 500 companies, frankly. And so I think that that's the audience that is going to uh, define the term controversial, which is not otherwise, I think, self-defining in context. Um, and I'm not sure ultimately what's worse. I, I mean, so I, I keep coming back to sort of the uh, analogy of actors. You know, you have British actors who, like Michael Caine who will take any role. They will take literally any role that is offered to them. If there's enough money associated with it, they will take that. And then you have sort of method actors, which are much more associated with sort of American New York school, where, no, no, you've got to feel this role. You've got to really get into this role. And I think that, you know, we've got lawyers who sort of fall into both camps. 
And I think a lawyer who declines a representation because this is detrimental ultimately to their long-term financial interests, that, that sounds kind of crass. But you know, somebody who only takes cases based on the moral decency of the client is also, I think, contrary to what we think of uh, as lawyer advocates, where lawyers, we want lawyers to represent murderers and people accused of terrible crimes. Uh, and we believe in a process that, you know, even a guy like Colin Ferguson, who killed a bunch of people in point blank range and it was recorded, gets a trial. He actually represented himself, as it turned out. But um, we do believe in a trial process. And so I, I think each of those extremes is kind of dangerous. I'm not sure which is worse. Uh, lawyers who bail because it's morally repugnant to them or lawyers who bail because uh, they just don't want the financial consequences. I just throw in one other point, which is largely human what's been said, but particularly what Karen is talking about is her role as a lawyer. When preparing for this evening, I read through the ethics uh, materials and some articles, and they have their own strange vocabulary that was alluded to earlier. And one word that I found particularly offensive <laughs> or annoying um, was the reference to the amoral lawyer position, which I think is the position they attribute to someone like Aaron Murphy. And this is ludicrous. Amoral? On the contrary, it's a different vision of morality. It's not about the substantive results-oriented morality. It's a process morality. And process, by the way, is freedom. So I think it's a lot to be said for that. So, oh, go ahead. So I, I think I'd like to ask one more question and then uh, open it up to uh, the audience for some Q and A additional discussion. And this final question focuses on the question of uh, standards. What standards are lawyers applying when they decide to uh, accept a representation, and what standards are law firms applying when they uh, ask lawyers to withdraw from a representation? Um, and, uh, and the question I want to ask, I hope, will be uh, uh, very practical for the people in the room who uh, will return from this uh, it, you know, so somewhat uh, theoretical and normative discussion back to the practical uh, business of running law firms. And so for lawyers practicing in firms, the question of a lawyer's duty to represent unpopular clients would seem to become urgent at two moments in particular. First, the client intake process. And second, a demand, perhaps from the managing partners of a firm, to withdraw from a representation and presumably that demand might, in, in certain circumstances, be coupled with some kind of threat of expulsion, perhaps, uh, pursuant to the partnership agreement, which may include clauses about uh, consequences for partners who take actions that are damaging to the reputation of the firm. And so I'll ask the panelists to, to address what is probably a somewhat unfair and, and excessively practical question, which is what should law firms and law firm partners do to ensure, first, that unpopular clients and causes are not being inappropriately rejected in the matter intake process. For example, that firms aren't treating as positional conflicts each and every divergence from their anchor client's politics. And secondly, what can we do to ensure that partners that undertake controversial representations are not inappropriately pressured or threatened with expulsion for potentially jeopardizing the firm's reputation due to a controversial uh, client. Maybe I'd ask uh, Professor Hamburger to, to address that first. Well, I'm, I'm not sure this can be a fixed rule or algorithm you can run these decisions through. You know, one takes clients sometimes just because it's fun. Right, which really matters, uh, it has, may just be irresistible. Uh, but I do have thoughts about what partners and firms might think about, uh, and it, different thoughts for the individual institution. The individual, never be afraid. It won't help you. Being afraid is a terrible thing. Don't let them make you feel afraid. Um, and one thing you might consider is not actually going out and you know, charge your firm with some sort of uh, Ethical conduct, but it's a conversation to be had within the firm and might get you a better bargaining position on your way out. But remember, you have to live your own life. You don't want to live a life in a place that's oppressive to you and what you believe. And there are other firms out there. Start a new firm, 
course, you want to do it prudently. Do it at a time you can, or we have to do it to your advantage. But think about this ahead of time before you put it into the box. And always be prepared for such things. Um, and then for the institutions, all I can say is, you know, I'm not in a position, I'm in Kirkland, hopefully, and I'm not going to be hiring them, I don't have the money. But if I did, I wouldn't be hiring Kirkland. And I think it's an illusion to think there won't be consequences to all of this. People are going to remember you. People, you mentioned Yale. Most people don't know what Yale is. I grew up in Yale, and Yale is my blood. Would I, if I had money, would I give them a penny? Not a chance. And what's interesting now is Yale's a four-letter word across the country. Judge Ho has been wonderful on this, and he's not going to be alone, right? Then you can go and announce it, but are you going to hire someone in that institution? I went to Yale School, but still, I, I think he's absolutely right. Um, there are going to be consequences. It won't be for every firm, but Alinsky got it awfully right. I don't like Alinsky, but he understands the world. He's smart. Um, one or two law firms will be singled out. They're just going to hang there in the wind. And they'll say, oops, and it'll be too late then. You don't want to be that law firm. So I'd say I, I kind of take your questions in reverse order, because I really think it's the, the first, the, the intake process should be the critical piece of all of this. Because on the back end, if you you know, if the firm intentionally took on the client, I think your criteria for dropping the client are, you know, did they stop paying us, or you know, things that are actually consistent with ethical reasons to drop the clients. So that puts all the more pressure on taking on representations thoughtfully. And, and I absolutely agree, but Judge Sullivan, you, you, know, you, you, you can't take on everything. You can't take on everything as a practical matter. And it is a business, and you do actually have to be thoughtful about, you know, am I going to put being, you know, representing controversial clients like such a premium on it as to destroy the rest of my business? And you know, realistically, most people aren't in a position to, to do that. Uh, and I think it's also, you know, it's very different depending on the size of firm you're at. Um, you have a lot more, on the one hand, being in a small firm, you have a lot more pressure, a lot more freedom to pick whoever you want to pick. On the other hand, you are more, cons you know, people are going to associate you much more with every decision that's made about the clients that your firm represents at a small firm because they know everybody there is probably involved in the decision, whereas at a firm like Kirkland, like, you know, uh, the average partner would not know uh, about every client that's coming in the door or have any real say in it. But, so, and, but I also think, you know, the decisions, some of them are easier in the small firm context because it's easier to just set a culture as a firm, as for people to know you, and with your clients of, hey, you all need to know this is what we do. This is this is what we, you know, we, we do controversial things on both sides, and all of you, we have many clients who are just like regular clients, just corporate clients, things that we do that none of you probably pay that much attention to because they're less interesting than some of the things that get us more in the press. But you know, all of those clients, they know. They know what we do. They, they know that they're coming to us um, because they, they consider us to be good lawyers, but they also, you know, they, they're, they, when, it, when the chips are down, they're perfectly happy to associate with people who have causes they don't love. And I think that, that actually gives me hope that, you know, it's good to see that most of these clients, it's all, for all the things that all these companies say, you know, when they've got a big case in the Supreme Court or whatever it is, it all goes out the window and they just want whoever they think are the best lawyers to do it. Um, so to me, that's, you know, I, 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 I think that's a positive. Um, but if you're at a bigger firm, there's, there's business realities. I do think you, you, know, you have to kind of think about the best things you can do, for one, is really diversify your client base. You want to have, a, you, you can't, if you're really dependent on kind of one client and they're going to be the ones who have really strong views, they make it very hard. I mean, this was a little more the experience back in the day when Paul left King and & Spalding and I joined him. They were a firm that was more dependent on a couple of big clients and if that's a huge source of your revenue, it's, it, you're putting yourself in a position where they have that power over you. And you know, one of the things I admired that, about Kirkland was that they're a, a huge, diverse, you know, diversified client-based firm that didn't need to couch out of that pressure. They just chose to, um, which then made me very disappointed in Kirkland. But you, you can do those things to guard a little bit against it. And I think having an intake process that says, you know, okay, we have to be realistic about business and the way this impacts business. And if we're taking something on that's going to cause, you know, 50% of our client base to walk out the door, like that's a real problem and you can't ignore it. 
On the flip side, though, I do think it's important to say, okay, we need to have some standards. It can't be that, you know, we shy away from controversy but define controversy in a way that allows one side to dominate the debate. Maybe you go out of your way to take some controversial stuff on both sides, which was something that we did at Kirkland and would often say to people, look, you know, our practice alone, just our little appellate practice, we had controversial liberal causes too. And the ability to point out and say, this isn't, it's, you know, we, we're lawyers and we do things on both sides. And when when they're really not a positional conflict in the way that you should think about a positional client conflict, something that actually is detrimental to another existing client's litigation or whatever it is, or business interest that you're representing in them, but instead just like a position some other client doesn't like. I mean, that's, you know, the, 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 my view is there should not be a heck of a lot of role for that theory of positional clients in your intake process. But I, I am sympathetic to the fact that as a big firm, you do have to recruit people, you do have to maintain clients, you do have to keep, uh, you know, keep the money coming in to keep people happy. And so it's, it's, it's not, you know, I don't think there's like an easy solution to dealing with the dynamics other than the best one I can offer is more, if you're someone who doesn't like it, be vocal. Because the reality is the, these, the, 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 what is viewed as the majority positions and the things that going against are controversial are not actually shared by, you know, the vast majority of the country. They're shared by a good chunk of the country and shared very strongly by a small chunk of the country, but they are much, much louder. And when people, you know, if, if a company or a firm or whatever it is is acting in a way that you actually think is inconsistent with professional norms or is kind of kowtowing to those pressures, like, you know, the best thing we can do is is call them out, is, you know, boycott the product, not hire the company, speak just as loudly so that they actually hear, not just after the fact. There will be consequences for you if you make this decision and you shouldn't be kind of assume that just because the, somebody's being very loud in your ear about their views about particular work or particular clients that they actually are representative of what all of your client base thinks. So I, I guess I would say it seems to me that the practice of law has changed and I think a lot of what we're talking about today is attributable to the demise of true law partnerships and law as a profession. I think what has changed since I was in law school and that's where it was already in process when I was in law school, but it is law is really not business. It, it doesn't really resemble a partnership. And I think there was a time when you grew up with a group of partners and you recognize that, you know, I'm a Democrat, he's a Republican, you know, he's a nut, I don't agree with him on politics, but he gets to pick a pro bono matter. He gets to pick his clients within reason, and I respect that because I'm gonna have a certain freedom to do mine as well. Um, and I think that's less true in a multi-hundred partner firm where, I, where partners don't have a lot of loyalty to firms to begin with. They, they move very, they're free agents. Um, and I think the market allows them to move with ease. And I think that then there's gonna be much less willingness to sort of allow the freedom of partners to exercise their own discretion uh, and have fellow partners say, well, you know, this is not my thing, uh, but I respect my partner to do that. And I also think um, there was a time when people hired associates with the thought that they will be partners at this firm. Good chance, you know, 50-50. Now, I mean, come on, that's not, I mean, it is a long shot anybody's gonna be a partner. And so I think the process of hiring younger lawyers is different as well. And so I think the ability to attract people with pro bono impact litigation is, I think is a huge selling point at firms. And that is a pressure, I think, uh, to move in certain directions. Now, I will say, you know, on the right, there are lots of, maybe not, there aren't as many big firms that are associated with the right, but there are lots of these boutiques that are getting great cases, they're getting great lawyers, uh, and they're doing, they're picking up the slack. I'm not too worried about Bruin. I think he's gonna do okay. I'm not too worried about the folks who are, you know, um, who are bringing First Amendment cases uh, about school choice or, you know, public funding of education. I think there's a lot of firms, frankly, in the space right now. It gets worrisome when someone is likely not to have any representation because of uh, their political position. And then, like Atticus Finch, I think you have to be willing to step up once in a while. Uh, but I don't think there's that many cases like that. I don't think there's that many clients like that. Um, so I don't think it's as dire, maybe, as it appears. I think in terms of firms, I think they should come up with sort of neutral rules 
as to why they're going to take certain cases. And if you want to say we're not taking criminal cases, as a lot of firms used to say, we're not doing criminal cases, um, then that's fine. It's easy to apply across the board. Uh, I, I think that that is no longer true, and I think that firms are having a lot of trouble coming up with consensus as to what are their neutral rules for taking cases, and if controversial cases are the ones we avoid, good luck with that. That's going to be a debate about what's controversial. So, uh, I, it may not be as completely terrible as it yeah, the only thing I would add to this, I mean, I totally agree with you about that. There's lots of people who want to do the work, and there's plenty of great lawyers who are providing the representation. I do think it's harder and harder for overtly conservative people to work at big law firms, and I worry that that, in the end, I mean, just to harken back to what I said earlier, I mean, I actually think it's, you know, good for lawyers to actually be able to talk to people who have different perspectives and learn how to represent clients that they don't think are right and divorce the law from the policy. And I do think it's it's a disservice to the clients of the big firms to, to for big firms to become more and more monolithic. So you know that that I do worry about um, and it's probably one of the single most Actually, the unpopular clients that get the question a lot, is there any room left for conservative lawyers to work in big law? And I hope the answer is not no, but well, it's, I think it's, it's very also, small at this point. Sure, I, I think it also means that you're, there, there's, you're gonna leave some talent on the table if that's what you're doing. Because, you know, I, I, I no stretch of a majority, but there, you know, there's a talented percentage of conservative lawyers at good schools who have you know, had good clerkships and are ready to hit the ground. And they're gonna be very valuable lawyers. And in paying matters that really are what makes sure that partners have, you know, are charging 1500 bucks an hour uh, and partner profits are going up, 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 they keep going up. Um, so I think if, if people care about their pocketbooks, they will probably want to make sure that they're still getting some of that other talent. So they, I think it's in, in the interest of every you know, lawyer who is self-interested uh, who might be partnered or firm to think about, well, we want to make this at least comfortable enough for lawyers who have different political views to, to want to work. So at this point in the discussion, I think we can open it up to uh, questions from the audience, but before we do that, could we just take a moment and thank the panel for this uh, insightful discussion?